0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. 2 Samuel
1: 15 says this. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute, to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, "'From what city are you?' And when he said, "'Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel,' Absalom would say to him, "'See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you.' Then Absalom would say, "'Oh, that I were judge in the land,' then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice.' And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, "'Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. "'For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went two hundred men from Jerusalem, who were invited guests. And while they went in their innocence and knew nothing... And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, "'The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom.' Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, "'Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly.' lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him and all the Carathites, and the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then, then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do, you go, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go know not, I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my, king, as my lord the king lives, Wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Itai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud, as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook of Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, until the people had all passed out of the the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord... He will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the Ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the Archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem.
0: Are you ever saddened by things in your past? Have you ever looked back at the trail behind you and have seen it littered with sin? And in spite of all your efforts to look past it, around it, beyond it, over it, all you can find on the trail is mistake after mistake after mistake. Are there ever things that you look at in your past or think about and you wince? And you think to yourself, man, what I wouldn't give to go back and redo that. What, what I wouldn't give to know then what I know now. What I wouldn't give to be able to fix that thing you ever look at things that are going on around you right now perhaps things that you might be able to think you can see in the future and think that right there is a consequence of my sin it's an inescapable unavoidable consequence that god is bringing to me because of my sin maybe it's Kids that you've seen grown up and you're you, uh, leaving your house and you're wandering away from the Lord and you're thinking to yourself that is a consequence of something I did. I didn't do this like I should have or I did do that and I shouldn't have and now I'm reaping the consequences. Maybe a host of other things. One thing is consistent amongst everybody in this room I think is that at one time or another, we have all played the fool. We have all made foolish choices. Sinful, foolish choices. And occasionally we are allowed to get a full glimpse of our foolishness and see what consequences it reaps. That's consistent amongst everyone in this room. David, in our passage, actually in all of Samuel, has played the fool. Especially over the last few chapters, he has made some really foolish decisions. And we've seen them play out. And over the next few chapters, we're witnessing several things all at once. One, we are witnessing an old king coming to the end of his life. David is... Aging. And he's getting close to the end. We're witnessing the next generation, his kids, coming up after him, battling over that throne. Who's going to take over when he dies? We're also witnessing, though, I think, David having come to realize what his sin is. Wrestling with the consequences of those sins and becoming more humbled as a result of his sin. Now, it's interesting though, isn't it, that David would become more humbled because it's not as though he struck us as arrogant before. We don't read the text of 1 Samuel when he comes along as a little shepherd boy and then all the way up into where he takes the king and he uh, takes the throne and he avoids killing Saul and all of those things. We don't really look at him there and think, He's arrogant. In fact, it's told to us he's a man after God's own heart, isn't he? he? He persevered in the desert as Saul was chasing him. He ran away. He didn't reach his hand out and strike Saul. When he's going to kill that fool Nabal, remember his wife Abigail intercepts him and, and pleads with him not to, and he listens to her counsel. He does this several times where he listens to the counsel of wise people around him. He grieved the death of the opposing general Abner. Remember when Abner put up Ishbosheth, Saul's kid, to be king instead of David? He mourned when Abner was killed, even though he was the opposing general. And he even mourns the death of Ishbosheth and puts the people who killed Ishbosheth to death. It doesn't strike us as arrogant. But David wasn't perfect either. We see the path behind David littered with. Sin. He collected many wives. And we've talked about over the course of time that those are, I think, a trail of breadcrumbs to lead you to his ultimate sin in chapter 11, where he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then attempted to cover it up with murder. All of those things had precedence in the past of the things that he had done before. He failed to punish his son, Amnon, after he engaged in egregious sin. And then he failed to punish Absalom, who tried to make amends for that sin with his own sin. He failed to punish Absalom. And then in the last chapter, we saw him bring Absalom back. And at the consultation with Joab, he even kissed Absalom and granted him almost amnesty back in the land again in front of the eyes of the people. All that might lead you to think that David is not only paying for his sins, but he is also the fool in this passage. And look how the fool is paraded out of town. He's going to suffer a fool's death after he's been played like a fiddle by his now oldest son, Absalom. But sometimes, just occasionally, real wisdom looks on the surface like foolishness. And sometimes, real foolishness on the surface looks like wisdom. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the two. I want to see that play out in our passage. First, I want to see when foolishness looks like wisdom. Look with me at verse 1. After this... Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of of the men of Israel. Absalom is beginning, now in this passage, to carefully, and probably has been for some time, to carefully plan his coup, his way of overthrowing David and taking the kingdom for himself. And if you're looking through the eyes of worldly wisdom at all that Absalom does, you're going to step away and go, man, that guy is a genius in the way that he approaches. I'm talking about through the eyes of worldly wisdom, the things that he does Seems like genius on the outside. Let's look at a couple of those things. First, he acquired a chariot and horses along with 50 men as runners. You see that there in verse 1. Kings would often surround themselves by an entourage. People that are important even in our own society today, you'll see, will surround themselves by an entourage. They'll pay to keep up the charade that they are big and important. And kings in this day were no different. They surround themselves with an entourage of workers. Gentile kings of the rest of the world would collect horses and chariots, and it would be just a big parade coming into town. And when you saw them coming, you could see them coming from a mile away because they'd be this huge crowd of people. And you go, well, that guy right there, he must be important. He must have some notoriety and some clout. And so naturally, Absalom's first step is to surround himself with all the trappings of royalty. If he looked like a king, people would start to think of him as a king. Second, what do we see? Absalom divided the people by exploiting their natural This is the next thing we see in Absalom's plan there in verse 2 and 3. Absalom's plan is dealing with the men of the tribes of Israel, which means all of those outside the tribe of Judah. So key in to what he's doing here, it says Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way of the gate... And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, that is, outside of Judah, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. This is clever. It's hard to notice if you're not paying attention What Absalom is doing here is playing on the fears of the people that David, being a king from Judah, is particular to the people of Judah. And so Absalom is sitting at the gate, and he's filtering people that are coming in, and he's saying, oh, you're from Israel? There's nobody here to hear your case. Although I think your case is right, and you deserve a hearing. There's just no one here to hear you. What then is understated in this passage is, oh, you're from Judah? Go right on it. So you see, Absalom is playing on the fears of the people that a king from Judah will be particular to the people of Judah and and hear their case and not hear mine. Finally, Absalom endeared himself to the people by the way, he greeted them when they came to the king for judgment. How would you think a king is going to respond if you're a peasant and you come to the king and you ask him for a favor? You're kneeling down before him. You kiss his ring. Maybe you kiss his feet. You bow down before him. You help him to understand you are in the place of service here and he is the king of the town. But they meet Absalom, the prince, the oldest of the king's sons. Absalom would belittle the palace and David by telling them lies. He'd build himself up as the one who hears you and who would give you justice if I were appointed only to do so. Look at what he says in 4. Oh, that I were a judge in the land. You can picture this overly dramatized presentation where he's just letting them have it. Oh, if I were a judge in the land... Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Not only that, but as the person bowed down low to kiss him, he would say, no, 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 no. Pick him up and give him a hug. Kiss him on the hand or the head and say, you and me, we're brothers, don't you see? We're from the same land. So after you leave, when when you encounter that kind of person, what do you leave thinking? Hey, Absalom... He's all right. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to David, but if David dies and Absalom becomes king, hey, we're in good hands, baby, right? That makes me feel real good. Of course he does. So Absalom is going to get the kingdom, or he's going to reach out and try to take it, and he's going to accomplish it. How? By cunning and manipulative and lying means. That's the way he sees the kingdom is grabbed, is by that process. But his sin is compounded in this one fact. Even if all those things were not true. There's one thing that's told to us at the end here that's particularly eyebrow raising. Should raise a ton of red flags is in verse 7. It says, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. It seems like in this little admission by Absalom, he sees God as a tool to the end. God is merely a means to get What he wants. If the Lord will bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will pay my vow and I will give him all the respect that he's due. I don't think Absalom is serious in any way about worshiping the Lord. I don't think that's what he's coming to David to present. I think he has the nature of a snake. And so I don't think what he's telling David is serious. I don't think he has any desire to go out into the wilderness and pay respects to nobody, but even if he was serious, it's never advisable to make bargains with the Lord as if you're holding the cards. Look, Lord, I have in my hand my worship of you, and I will give you these cards if you bring me back into the land. You do this for me, and I'll do that for you. The reality is you're not holding any cards. You don't have any cards to play. Any cards you have, the Lord gave you. Those are not yours to play. Nevertheless, he's going to pretend to go out into the wilderness, and he's going to pretend to worship the Lord and fulfill this vow of his. But what he's actually going to do is try to garner support from the men of the surrounding cities. He's going to plan his coup out in the wilderness, much like what he sees David having done By being king in Hebron. Verse 10. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So while he's down there in Absalom, uh, in, in Hebron, Absalom has his flash mob prepared back in the land. And they're going to do something very specific. When they hear the sound of the trumpet, that means Absalom is ready. And they're all going to turn, essentially, on David. They're going to pull out their protest drums and their picket signs and their anthems and all that kind of thing. And they're going to sing out loud and shout out loud in the streets, Absalom is king in Hebron. As if this is some now revelation of this plan that he's got to let David know, I'm here, I'm strong and I'm coming. So David can be warned. At the same time, he takes 200 men. Most likely, the men that he takes are going to be prominent men in Jerusalem. The real power players, if you will, in Jerusalem. Takes them out of Jerusalem and to Hebron with him. Though you notice, they have no idea what's going on. They go out there in their innocence because the prince or the oldest son of David wants them out there. So they. They join him out there in the wilderness. They have no idea what's going on. Finally, Absalom is joined by Ahithophel, the Gilanite. He's one of David's most trusted counselors. We know that. In the next chapter, we find out his word was like the word of God among people. So it means he's really wise. So it's designed to strike fear in the heart of David. But why does David's most trusted advisor, why does this wise person go out there and join Absalom in the wilderness when he comes to find out that Absalom is planning a coup. Why does he do that? I don't know, because it's not specifically stated in the text. But could it be because Ahithophel the Gilanite is the grandfather of Bathsheba? Oh! That one hurt, didn't it? Maybe so. I don't know if that's the reason, but he is, and potentially After seeing the murder of his son in law, or his grandson in law, and what happened with his granddaughter, perhaps he's looking at David with suspicious eyes already. So, again, David is looking back on the road behind him and seeing it littered with sin, and many of these things that are brought about Absalom, Ahithophel, various other things, a result of the things and the decisions that he has made. But on the outside, what we're seeing in Absalom's story, on the outside, Absalom has it all together. He has the hearts of the people. He's growing stronger and stronger. More people are coming to support Absalom over the days. He has all the powerful leaders of Israel. He has the wisest men, including Ahithophel the Gilanite. That's not to mention he has youth, He has vigor, and as we saw in the last chapter, he has great hair. Right? Hey, don't knock the great hair. I certainly have taken it for granted, and I won't anymore. But what happens often is that folly, foolishness, looks like wisdom and success to the naked eye. Often, it looks like Foolishness does, that it has itself all together, that everything is perfect. The business model and the profits are all great. Everything on the outside of the business looks fantastic. And then you learn on the inside, the executives are shoveling cash out the back door. Enron. Who knew? The family presents itself like it has it all together. You never get a Christmas card from a family where everybody's in chaos. That's how they were three seconds after the picture was taken, right? But while the picture was taken, they're being threatened within an inch of their life to smile, not cheesily, but sit there like you love each other and smile for the picture. And that's what goes out to all the family, or all the families, or all the people that you're sending your cards to. There's a beautiful wife, there's a handsome husband, there's 2.5 kids, there's a dog that is purebred golden retriever, and somehow simultaneously also a rescue, right? (laughs) It says beauty and I'm doing my part, okay? But the husband and the wife are, you find out, both checked out of the marriage. The kids are starting to notice this, starting to feel disenfranchised from the family. That's not what you're going to see on the outside. On the outside, it looks like everything is put together and in a perfect package. And maybe you can come to church and you look around at the family sitting next to you, to the left and to the right, and you go, man, they seem like they've got it all together. And I'm the only one that's a mess. No. That's not true. None of us are in that position. Stick around here long enough and you'll figure that out. Foolishness is rarely obvious. And I think this is the case with Absalom. I want you to pay attention through the lens of foolishness of Absalom and look at some of the things that are red flags. He has the leading men with him at Hebron, but none of them know why they're there. Is it possible that if he had told them why they're there, they wouldn't have come? Maybe so. They're there to keep up appearances, and what are they there to do? Make David feel like he is isolated in Jerusalem. He hears the trumpets, he hears the people say, uh, Absalom is king in Hebron, and he looks around and he goes, oh, is that where everybody is? I thought it seemed kind of quiet around here for a Saturday. Yeah. Absalom is attempting to grab the throne that God has already promised to Solomon. Major red flag, foolishness. Which brings us to the most obvious evidence of his foolishness. His vow to God seems to be, at best, contingent upon his success. At worst, he's a hypocrite. At best, his vow to God is contingent on his success. Undermining God's word while claiming to serve God is the definition of hypocrisy and folly. So that's when foolishness looks like wisdom. But what about when wisdom looks like foolishness? On the other hand, here is David acting wisely, but he looks foolish on the outside. He gets wind from the messengers that the hearts of the people of Israel have gone after as Absalom. Now, I don't know what the context He has for this, or if things started to make sense once he heard the news, like I said, he kind of gets, he starts to realize there's a lot of people missing, and, and maybe that's where they are, is down in Hebron following Absalom. But he decides that his best recourse is to flee the palace and the city, or else Absalom will come in and kill him and everyone else. Now, does David, in his absence, Put Joab at the city gates? You would think, well, he's still got something of an army, doesn't he? And Joab seems to be a ruthless guy. Well, put him at the city gates and put the army there with him and and he can defend anybody that comes in. Does he do that? Is that who he has? Protect his palace and his house? Nope. Look at verse 16. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. What does he leave? Ten concubines. Seems insufficient, to say the least. Seems strange. Also, by taking these women from David, Absalom is going to demonstrate to all of Israel that he is now in control of the kingdom. By taking all of David's wives and concubines. It looks like David is suffering a fool's fate. He's obviously believed that the 200 men of the city who are with Absalom are cooperating with Absalom, that they're out there willingly. He has no other way of knowing anything else. But also, this is kind of David's M.O., isn't it? In the ways that he has dealt with Saul in the past, he opted on the norm to deal somewhat passively, to keep Saul at arm's length opted not to fight unless he absolutely had to in most cases. And so he's doing here. He'd rather walk away from the city than put Jerusalem and its people in the midst of a bloody war. That might be a bit of wisdom. But he looks weak on the outside. And probably no doubt many people are going, why don't you stay here and fight? Why don't you put Absalom in his place? Why did you send somebody out there to kill him? And David doesn't do that. He instead opts to go away. He looks weak. He looks like he's scurrying. He looks afraid. Second, David moves out east. He moves out east of the land, past the Mount of Olives, which, if you know your Bibles, moving out east of the Promised Land is a bad sign. Adam and Eve, where are they kicked out of the garden? Out east. The people of Israel, after David, when they go into exile in Babylon, where do they go? Out east. When Jesus, in the New Testament, leaves the promised land and he pronounces the woes in Matthew over the temple and he says, he gives all the woes to the Pharisees and he he says, your house is left to you desolate. Where is he standing? Out east. The Mount of Olives. David's Heading out into exile. He's heading out away from the land. His entourage moved past the city gates. They move past the last house in the settlement outside the gates, then across the Kidron Valley, up the slope of the Mount of Olives. David is suffering exile like a fool. And who does he have to support him on his way out of town? Strong, strong. Leading men? Nope. Foreigners. Servants. Two of them, in fact. The first is Ittai the Gittite. That means he is a Philistine from the city of Gath. That's what a Gittite is. Look at verse 20. David saying to Itai, You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives, wherever my Lord, the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Now, David won't let Ittai go with him because it wouldn't be fair to him. You, you're you're a Philistine. You came just the other day. You're, you're new around here. Look, nobody knows you've been serving me. Just go back, take your brothers with you, bow before Absalom. It'll be fine. You're going to live. May the Lord show loving kindness to you. But Ittai is not having it. I will not go back. I will serve you. He's sticking with David through thick and thin. He even swears by Yahweh and David's a Double oath that he takes there to David. He's serious. And he even brings his kids with him. The second foreigner that comes up to David is Hushai, the archite, a servant of David. Also not an Israelite. Hushai looks disheveled. He looks a lot like David, actually. He's got dirt all over him. And he and David cook up this crazy plan The plan that David and he cook up is that Hushai is going to go back and he's going to pretend to serve Absalom and while he's there in the court of Absalom pretending to serve him he's going to slip information to David through palace details on the inside and he's going to slip it through this underground network of priests. Sounds like a crazy plan. To the naked eye David is fleeing from Absalom like a fool. He's suffering exile from God's land like a fool. His company is foreigners, not his own people. Foreign servants, for that matter, not his own people like a fool. He even has the look of a fool. Look at verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. That doesn't look very much like a strong king. Like a king who's in the powerful position. He looks like one who has given up hope. He's in the position of mourning. Fasting, if you will. Suffering. Prayer. Weeping. He seems weak by all accounts. Along with all the rest of his household. He seems like and looks like a fool and he's going to die a fool's fate and it's all because why? When you look back on the road behind him, it's littered with his foolishness. And so he's paying for all those consequences. He's a fool and he's going to die like a fool. But in spite of his appearances, I think David is actually the wise one here. And the main clue that I have for that is this scene where the priests come up to him, and they're carrying the ark. The priests' names are Abiathar and Zadok. And they're carrying the ark with him, and they're bringing it out to David. Now, I'm not sure exactly what they're thinking in bringing the ark out there, but if you've read First and 2 Samuel, as we have week after week, then it might be something like this. If Absalom comes to Jerusalem 1 and takes over Jerusalem then he's going to have the ark of the covenant which is the special presence of God there amongst God's people so if if the worst thing that could happen is Absalom comes in and he gains possession of the ark do you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 5 when the Philistines come into possession of the ark that's not a thing we want to relive we don't want I mean, granted it worked out well for us because God didn't need anyone to defend him but at the same time, it wasn't good that the ark was captive. Do we want the ark to be captive uh, to Absalom and his whims? And who knows what he's going to do? Then what does that mean for God's people? It may also be what happened the previous chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the priests brought the ark out to the battlefield when they were facing the Philistines. What was the thinking there? Well, the ark is something like a good luck charm for us. We bring it out there to the battlefield, and when we bring it out there, we're going to win. So maybe the thinking of the priest is something like, David, if you have the ark with you, then you have God with you. And if God is with you, then surely you can march back into Jerusalem with the ark in front of you and conquer Absalom and his forces as they come into the city. But look at how David responds to them. And I think this underscores the wisdom that we should see this scene through. Look at verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. That phrase, let him do to me what seems good to him, occurs six times in First and 2 Samuel. And it's used to articulate your humility. Three times that phrase is used before a king, sometimes King David, you do whatever seems good to you. We're in a position of humility, David, Saul even, do what seems good to you. But it's used three times In relation to God, let God do to me what seems good to him. It's used once by Eli when he's told his sons are going to die on the same day and that he's being judged for his negligence in their case by God. Eli says, He's God. Let him do what seems good to him. Joab and Abishai use this of God when they're faced with impossible odds. They're standing on the battlefield, and there's armies upon armies standing around their piddling little army. And they say, well, here's what we're going to do, and let the Lord do what seems good to him. And it's used here by David. Let the Lord do what seems good to me. It's used in reference to God when people feel as though death is a foregone conclusion they're pretty sure they're going to die. But this highlights a major difference between Absalom and David. And hopefully you're starting to see it. While Absalom seems to invoke God by repaying a vow to God for God's rescue of him, David says, let God do whatever seems good to him. I don't hold the cards. God does. David's statement says, regardless of what God does to me, Whether I live or whether I die, if it seems right to God, it is right. There's a song we often sing in here called, Whatever My God Ordains Is Right. And if you read the lyrics to that song as we sing it, it's hard to sing. Not because the tune is hard to catch, but because the lyrics are hard to say. To say, whatever my God ordains is right. When my road is dark, it says, whatever He ordains is right. That's what David is saying here. Whatever God has determined is right, is right. I can't help but feel that David is looking back on his past when he says that. But as we consider David's actions in light of wisdom here, I think what you can see is that unlike Absalom, who has Hebrew nobility on his side, they aren't aware of where, why they're with him. David has foreigners with him, but they are loyal to him through thick and thin. They'll play the role of spy. They'll play the role of servant. They'll do whatever he asks of them. Hushai the archite comes to David as a servant. And here's the other thing that clues us in, that this is the Lord's providence, not his cursing. Hushai the archite comes in and and decides, pledges with David to play the role of spy. Right after David prays in verse 31. Read it with me. And it was, da- it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And along comes an answer to his prayer in Hushai the Archite. David's position looks like folly, but it's actually wisdom. It's wisdom not because of a choice that he made here or there. It's wisdom because underneath it, David is brought to a place of humility. A place where he realizes that God is the true king. That God calls the shots. That he is subject to the Lord's will. And God will do with him whatever he seems, whatever seems fit to him. Whatever he decides to do and david is brought to a place where he's okay with that whatever god decides to do with me is okay i imagine as i said david's journey out of town gave him a lot of time to think if only i had done this or i had done that i'm sure it gave him a lot of time to metaphorically look back over the path of his life and see it littered here and there with all kinds of sin. And I'm sure at some point in the journey, as he's weeping and praying, he probably thought to himself, what a fool I've been when I took that woman off that rooftop. And then when I saw to it that her husband was killed. What a fool I've been. Perhaps you've been in situations like David. Maybe you think back over your life and you cringe when certain memories come up. You think to yourself, what I wouldn't give to have that one back. What I wouldn't give to know then what I knew now. If I'd only done this or that. You ever think back? Nearly brought to tears. Thinking, man, If only I could know then, what I know now. Why doesn't God just make us born with wisdom? Let me ask, what's God's purpose in your life? What is it, really? Is the purpose of your life, is God's intention with your life to bring you through to the end unscathed? For you to be able to look back and go, I did everything right. Is it to look back and say, no regrets whatsoever. Man, aren't I amazing. That's what the world will tell you is the goal. To look back on your life and not have any regrets. I would submit to you for your consideration that God brings all his children to this point of looking like fools. So that we come to the same point that David comes to where we are also able to say, well, here I am at the end of all my so-called wisdom and this is how far it's gotten me. You know what? Forget all of that. And just let the Lord do to me what seems good to him. I think that is what God is doing in the lives of his children. I think bringing us to the point of real wisdom, which David reaches here. Let the Lord do to me what seems good to him. This is true wisdom. That God grants to His children in realizing their own humanistic efforts at salvation are futile. And they come then to depend solely on His mercy and on His grace for whatever they have. Now the fool might come to this place as well. They might come to see their regrets. But then what do they think? Try harder next time. Remember, the essence of the gospel message is here I am, let the Lord do to me what seems good to him. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was also exiled, he was also crucified outside the city walls. He was mocked, he was spat upon, he was beaten, he was rejected, he was scorned by men who said, if you really are the Son of God, come down off that cross, looking like a fool, bleeding and naked on the cross. And if that's not enough, not only rejected by men, but rejected by God, facing God's wrath for my sin, he hung there. In the eyes of the world, Jesus was made to look like the worst fool that has ever been in existence, dying the death of fools at the hands of foolish people on behalf of foolish people. But three days later, in his resurrection, God declared to the world, He's not a fool, He's mine. Christian, what are you living for? Success in the here and now, so that in the eyes of the world I might not be made to look like the fool? Are you greater than Jesus? What is it that you are living for? In this life, you will look like a fool to the outside world. Which complicates matters when you Climb the ladder of corporate success. Not to say you can't do that, but just that it becomes harder to live like a Christian the higher up you get. The less like a fool in the eyes of the world you become, the harder it is to really live like a Christian. But perhaps you look back at the things that you've done in your past. Maybe you look at the present or even what you can see of the future and you think of the consequences you may be reaping or are anticipating reaping. Maybe you feel so much remorse. Do you understand that God is bringing all of those things in your past to bear now on your spiritual growth, to conform you to the image of His Son, who while here looked like a fool. But it's not in this world that we're living for. In the resurrection of the dead, when Christ returns, God will declare to all those who look like fools for Christ, you are not a fool. You are mine. You are son. You are daughter. So Christian, where are your eyes? Are they on the here and now? Or are they on eternity? If in the end, all of those things in your past that litter your trail, all those sins, if all of those things bring you to a place of repentance of sin and dependence on God in complete submission to His will, then you haven't lost You've won. It is Paul, after all, who says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful to be considered fools by worldly standards. Because we know that foolishness in the world's eyes is the cross of Christ by which we are saved. So we pray only that we would trust more in your saving grace and mercy to us. And may we all say, you are the Lord. You do what seems good to you. Pray this be our anthem in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.